The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to welcome Mike Dennis, co-head of EMEA Credit at Aries Management in London. How are you, Mike? Yeah, very well, James. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to dig into your credit market views. Also delighted to welcome back Bloomberg's very own Lisa Lee, covering markets from London. Great to see you again, Lisa. Great to see you and thanks for having me again. And from Bloomberg Intelligence, excellent to see Stefan Kovacev, also in London. Welcome back, Stefan. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. So let's start with you, Mike. Great to see you on the Credit Edge. We're going to get to the specifics of your portfolio and your positioning, but let's start with a macro view. The economy is chugging away. Inflation is moderating. It's all about rates now. Last year turned out to be a good one for credit, mostly because of a huge rally in November and December, which really did seem to come from very aggressive policy easing, priced in early and probably too much, it would seem. Now those dovish bets are being unwound. The Fed's pushing back on any imminent rate cuts. Markets are selling off, just as we're seeing corporate supply really ramping up. So where do we go from here, Mike? Everyone keeps telling us this is a great credit market, tons of opportunity out there. But when does the Fed start cutting? How much will they reduce rates? Do do they even need to do anything, given how well the economy is performing right now? What's your view? Yeah, look, I think uh, rates are due to come down this year. Uh, But let's not forget, you know, it wasn't too long ago we were in a zero rate environment. So even if they come down, I think they're only going to moderately reduce during 2024. Um, And that creates a good environment for for credit. I think people have more confidence as to where rates are going. Um, That combined with what you've just said there, James, combined with the benign macro environment is driving activity levels. And we definitely saw uh, more activity in Q4. Uh, and I think that's that's translated into more activity in Q1. So actually, in terms of the deal environment from an activity point of view, I think actually this is this is a, a pretty good time to be in credit. And as I say, even if rates come down a little bit, you know, we're talking about uh, rates at three, four, four percent plus, you know, that combined with the spreads you're finding in credit today still generate relatively good uh, risk adjusted return. So I just wanted to take advantage of the fact you're in Europe and you cover Europe to sort of dig a little bit into that region. Um, when we talk to global portfolio managers about Europe, they certainly like the sound of it for potential diversification, also because it looks relatively cheap. Um, of course, they skew to the bigger US market and maybe Europe's cheap for a reason because of those economies. You know, they seem a bit more challenged than in the US. A lot of issues with inflation, which is tying policymakers' hands, also seems to be, you know, the headlines we're seeing this week on property uh, issues with the banks. Um, what's the macro outlook um, in terms of um, EMEA where, from where you sit, Mike? Yeah, look, I think this is a challenge that uh, sitting in London, I get, uh, I get a lot from global investors and, and commentators. Um, look, the reality is most commentators would have had the UK and the European markets in recession at this point. 
and the fact is that's just not happened actually what we're seeing is is low but but growth positive growth and again let's 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 uh, you know talk about what we're trying to do what what credit investors are trying to do they're for the most part taking firstly and senior secured risk through 30 40% loan to value and therefore as long as you're in a stable uh, economic environment actually the gdp growth doesn't need to be that positive to make these senior investments uh, attractive. So actually, as a senior secured lender, for the most part, seeing growth at 0.5% up to maybe 1% across most of the markets in, in Europe, that's not a bad place to be. It might not work for the equity, but actually it works for, for credit investors. And so, you know, th- there's an overlay to that as well, James, which is to say, you know, credit investors aren't buying GDP, right? They're not buying the macro. We're not buying to a benchmark, right? Private credit direct lending is a very selective asset class where we're specifically choosing to invest in companies and sectors that are actually in growth and don't exhibit some of the cyclical characteristics maybe that you've just alluded to. So when you look across direct lending or private credit portfolios generally, you're not going to see a lot of consumer B2C uh, you're not going to see a lot of energy construction manufacturing. What you will find is actually a lot of B2B type businesses. So these are the service-based businesses, software technology, healthcare, education, etc. And so those sectors tend to exhibit more defensive characteristics. And therefore, whether the economy is growing at 0, 1, 2% actually doesn't really matter for senior secured credit investors. You've been one of, Aries is one of the biggest and leading private credit lenders, and you also have a sizable liquid business. We talk, let me bring up the example Ardena, which even a few months ago, we were expecting to go to the private credit lenders and perhaps even be the biggest private credit loan ever. And instead now, it's going almost half, $2 billion into the public debt markets, high yield bonds, and then three for direct lending. Tell me, what does that tell you about the health of the market and opportunities for private credit? Yeah, and let's not forget Ardonna uh, was financed in the private credit markets for some time. But as I said before, you know, given the confidence in the macro, given the the stability uh, of the macro, and the I think most investors now have some kind of view as to where rates are going, and and probably down, not up. That has given the confidence uh, for this the public credit markets to become more active. So I think it was inevitable as we entered into twenty twenty four that the banks and public credit investors would be more involved in assets like Ardonna. And I think that's what's going to happen in 2024. You're going to see this continued convergence and coexistence between public and private credit. Um, I think that's especially true in the European markets and even more so in the sterling markets where liquidity, I think, will continue to be constrained. There's a sense, though, Mike, that the, the private credit came in when times were rocky, and now that times aren't so rocky, and you know the public markets, as you say, are gaining confidence that the sort of the the value proposition of private credit is somewhat diminished, and public markets end up sort of naturally taking those deals back, and that you know the whole hype about the golden age of private credit that all sort of fades now at this point. Do do you think that that's that's a possibility? Well, James, I I really don't like the term gold, the golden age of private credit because, frankly, I think uh, it's been a good time for private credit for some time. So, um, no, let me just address um, the the, the public-private uh, uh, credit coexistence a little bit uh, a little bit more. Um, the reality is, 
yes, Ardonna tapped the private markets when the overall market was a little bit bit trickier. But don't forget, private credit players or direct lending players in general, look at that large end of the market opportunistically. Their businesses, our businesses are not founded on those uh, larger bit, lo- those larger deals basically sustaining our business model. For the most part, direct lenders heritage and foundation was really in the mid market. And that's where most of that deal activity, most of the deployment of direct lenders and private credit providers, that's where it sits. And so, yes, Ardonna was slightly different in that it was a very large deal. Private credit took that down in a difficult uh, credit market. But that doesn't take away the proposition or the, the value add that direct lenders and private credit providers can provide to middle market lenders. I think that's absolutely still true. And the tailwinds in that market are as good as ever. The banks continue to retrench. The commercial banks, those middle market banks, are still risk off for the most part. You know, we've talked about interest rates, but interest rates are still going to be north of zero. And therefore, cash coupons on these loans are still going to be relatively attractive uh, in 2024 and beyond. And so, again, I, I don't think we should get hung up looking at the one or two deals at the large end of the market that the private credit providers did maybe in 22, 2023. That does not change the value proposition of, of private credit or direct lending to investors. Oh, great. And maybe a question on the potential risks ahead for me. Uh, I'm uh, coming from a cyclical industrial background. So obviously in the US, we have elections and uh, around Europe as well, and a lot of geopolitical risk as well, especially here uh, here in Europe. So wondering, um, how are you thinking about, uh, you know, allocation of risk in this in the year ahead? Is it will there be some potential um, traps or landmines to avoid? Yeah, well, it's interesting you've picked up on on the geopolitical point because I actually do think whilst there has been more activity from the public credit markets and and, and banks have come back pretty strongly, I guess in early twenty twenty four, I think the capital markets in general are still pretty fragile, right? It wouldn't take much for that liquidity to to reverse out of the system. Some of those geopolitical risks you've just talked about may welcome to the forum. We've got elections later in the year. I, I do think that creates uh, quite a bit of fragility. And therefore, actually, maybe private markets will play a, a larger role in these larger deals this year if that comes to fruition. In terms of the way we think about risk, I go back to something I said earlier. You know, look, we are cash flow lenders for the most part. We are looking uh, or trying to find companies in sectors which demonstrate real resilience at the revenue line with really good margin structure, right? On top of that, these businesses have to generate really good levels of cash conversion. So when you ask me about industrial cyclicals, those types of businesses are never going to be or find their way into kind of the direct lending portfolios in any big way, right? I mean, there's always exceptions to the rule, but there's never going to be big allocations to those kind of cyclicals for the reason uh, the reason I mentioned. We've talked a lot about um, all the money being raised for this strategy, Mike. Um, private credit, you know, is the big thing. Um, when there is too much money chasing too few goods, I mean, there aren't that many deals to go around. Sometimes there's a there's a risk of um, you know bad deals happening. Um, do you fear that um, some you know there may be some lemons out there? There may be a bigger default risk. Um, appearing i mean it's it's also very hard to see the defaults because these things get amended but but do you feel that you know we are going to get a lot more defaults in private credit well let me let me come on to the default question in, in a minute james but just to uh, you know think about 
you know, too much capital chasing too few deals, or that that's your, I guess, uh, perception potentially. But let's look at Europe. Europe is a market for direct lenders and private credit providers where they are continuing to take share from banks. So this is not necessarily just about the size of the market. It's about the relative shares within it. And actually, as I said before, there's a lot of tailwinds for direct lenders as they take market share away from the commercial banks. So I would argue, actually, there isn't sufficient dry powder in the private lending community, the direct lending community, to actually meet the demand. I mean, you think about the amount of dry powder in the private equity markets in Europe today. You know, we're talking about 250 billion plus. The dry powder in the direct lending market in Europe, we would estimate closer to 60, 70 billion. So I would argue, actually, there's, there's a mismatch the other way, James. And if the commercial banks aren't going to fill that void, right, who is? And in Europe, clearly, it's going to be the direct lenders. You know, in Europe, we don't have BDC structures. We don't really have middle market CLOs. We don't have those other sources of, of credit and capital creation that you do in the US. It's really just the commercial banks and the direct lenders. And so I think we're in a market actually where the supply demand imbalance is in favor of, of the direct lenders, potentially, rather than uh, the other way around. Well, since you did mention dry powder, Ares is one of the most active fundraiser. What is the fundraising environment right, like right now? And how often are you on a plane? And when's the first destination <laughs> you go to? The Middle East? Is it Japan? US? Well, Lisa, you know I'm not going to talk about specific fundraisers. Um, but look, I, I would say that uh, generally speaking, investors are still looking to allocate to direct lending and private credit generally for all the reasons we've talked about over the last 10, 15 minutes, um, because effectively they can access high cash yielding investments with relatively low risk, right? As I say, these are senior secured investments, 30, 40% loan to value, um, and with good governance uh, and structures around them. So you know, I think from a from a, an allocation point of view, we're certainly hearing from LPs that they want to allocate more, you know, to the to the space. Um, that said, there are also global investor challenges, and those challenges come in the form of liquidity. You know, let's not forget there's been an awful lot of capital or allocations been made to alternative asset classes over the last three, four, five, six years question the amount of distributable proceeds that have been given back to investors. So there is this liquidity or cash profiling challenge that some investors will face. But I think they're doing all they can to allocate to this vintage. I'm not going to use the word golden age, James, but, uh, you know, they are doing all they can to, to allocate to a vintage where, you know, interest rates will remain elevated, spreads are pretty stable, and therefore the risk-adjusted return of, of the asset class still remains pretty attractive. So fundraising is still going on and you're making you're finding LPs are interested. One of the reasons why LPs like private credit is the fact that you don't have as much volatility. Mm -hmm. But as private credit and public market sort of converge and like take Ardenal once again, where you were going to have a high yield bond and a private credit option. Does the volatility starts to bleed in? Does it will it still be sort of a sort of immune from volatility and more more calmer, more marks will be stable or will it will there be more volatility going forward? Uh, potentially a little bit, but again, think about the the portfolio formation uh, of these direct lenders and, and private credit providers. For the most part, 
you know, a lot of the allocation is going to be into a liquid middle market debt, which obviously doesn't exhibit the same levels of volatility. So I think you might be right, but but for a small proportion of these portfolios. So I, I actually don't think it's a too big a challenge for LPs to to, to get their head around. Going back to defaults, um, Mike, I know you want to talk about them. Um, the um, idea is that you're getting very high yields, which is great for the investor, but possibly not so much for the issuer. In going into a downturn where the, the earnings are going to be suffering. At the same time, you know, when we talk to private credit investors, they all say, well, we only do the good deals. Surely that can't be, you know, always the case. What do you think about the 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 default rate in this market? Yeah, I, look, I, I think that the first thing to say is actually when you look at private credit portfolios generally, what you are seeing is actually pretty robust earnings growth, right? Revenues and earnings are growing. I I would accept James that in most portfolios that that we see, um, you're seeing some kind of margin pressure. Uh, we all know 2023, we saw wage inflation, energy inflation, et cetera. That has a margin impact at the underlying uh, issuer level. That said, absolute earnings are still continuing to grow in these niche segments, these sectors that I've already talked to where we're focusing uh, our time. So I don't think today's issues are one of uh, operating performance or profitability Liquidity is more of a challenge because you've gone from a zero to a four or five base percent base rate environment. So liquidity uh, is 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 more more challenged. Um, but again, you know, when you have well structured firstly in deals through 30, 40 percent LTV, you're very, very well covered from a valuation perspective. And even if you get a tick up in defaults, which you, you could be right, James, I think that's a that's a possibility that in 2024 we see an increase in defaults we actually should be looking at loss given default. You know, I think that's much more of a, a, an important metric. And I think where you, you I think what you're going to find is in these senior secured portfolios, the loss given default actually doesn't, doesn't, doesn't go up. Actually, the recovery rates are very, very high on these senior secured loans. So I don't worry too much about defaults because let's not forget, if you have a default and you're a senior secured lender, that actually gives you quite a lot of control. You can reprice risk, you can take control of the asset in extremis. So actually defaults in and of themselves are not the issue. I think what we should be looking at is loss given default. And as Lisa's written a lot about, you know, the recoveries have gone substantially down. You know, they used to be about 80%. Now they're in the 20s or 30s. So you're going to take a much bigger hit potentially. Do you, do you have a kind of number in terms of your, when you think about default rate? Because on, on the syndicated loans, I think Moody's is saying around 6% or something, which doesn't seem priced into the to the loan market. But is is the default rate much higher or, or is it lower in, in, in direct lending, do you think? it's? Uh, I think it's a lot lower in direct lending today. And I, and I wouldn't recognize um, losses or loss given default at, at 20%. Because again, most of the assets in the middle market where direct lenders spend most of their time, you know, you have one lender, you're structuring these deals at very low uh, loan to value. Just think about all the equity value that sits across these loans. Um, you know, the, the equity value from these private equity firms, they've invested a huge amount of capital in these assets. And therefore, there's there's a significant amount of value to burn before actually the lenders start to, to lose money. So I wouldn't recognize a loss given default uh, anywhere close to 80%. On your sector allocation preferences, you mentioned a very benign macro environment. And a lot of people are also talking about AI or the big tech. So just wondering if you have any specific picks in terms of um, big sectors. 
Um, no, look, we, we're trying to create sector diversification for our investors. That's something that's, you know, that's important to them. It's important to us as portfolio managers. Um, and uh, as I said before, we're focusing on a number of sectors that show defensive characteristics. So that would include a, a, a number. Um, I, we're not thematic investors in that sense, right? It is very much bottom up asset by asset specific. So I'm not trying as a portfolio manager to to to, to invest to a theme in 2024. Mm. I'm trying to originate as much as we can from the markets that we operate in and then be very selective on an asset by asset basis. So trying to go back, Mike, on to recoveries, and you're saying that you expect higher recoveries from middle market loans. Now, I was at GE Capital for a very short time, not <laughs> like you, not a senior level person like you, but I do remember how long it took and how much work it took to work out a troubled loan. Do you think the industry as a general is aware of that. There's a lot of new entrants. They have never seen a, a real true default cycle or, or a recession. And you can't trade out of these things. And there's not, I don't see that many restructuring people in not many of these shops. So what what is your forecast maybe for the industry wide? I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, it's something that at Aries we put um, a lot of resource and, and focus on is, is the whole portfolio management uh, the restructuring capability, um, the human talent, you know, human capital we have in that area. I think as an industry, yes, I think people have built out origination teams, but but the portfolio management functionality has probably lagged. We've seen that change a little bit in the last 12, uh, 18, 24 months, but, but, but I think you're right. I think there's still a little bit of a gap uh, in that area. And we all know that restructurings do take a lot of time. And I think we saw this a little bit in COVID, Lisa, which is to say, you know, a number of peers really were inwardly looking during COVID, i.e. they were focused on the portfolio. And it's really interesting because when you go through periods of dislocation like that, actually what you want to be doing is focusing on the new deal market, because frankly, the, the risk adjusted return for new deals when you go through periods of dislocation tend to be attractive. So for, for me, you need to be able to and have the resources to play both, I use the American term, offense and defense, right? You need to be able to defend the portfolio, but at the same time, have the resources to go out into the market and find that risk adjusted return, which potentially could be better because of the dislocation that's going on in the wider market. Since you mentioned dislocation, it does seem like right now, the dislocation that we've experienced for the past year and a half is sort of dissipating. But I wonder how truly is that when you look at the leveraged loan market and the high yield bond market across US and Europe, for instance, um, in Europe, I mean, in the US, cotivity is going seems to be going towards the bank route. But in Ardenov, like as you said, there's only 500 million that's coming to the European market. So how strong is the bid? in Europe and in the US? And are banks getting a little ahead of themselves given <laughs> that CLO issuance is better, but not re like rebounding in a massive way? Yeah, look, I think the bank bid in the in, in the US is absolutely stronger than it is in Europe and is and is stronger than, than the sterling markets. Uh, and that's probably all, all, always been the case. Um, CLO issuance actually, look, it is still neutered. Actually, we saw 26, 27 billion, I think, euros of new CLO issuance last year. I think commentators would say that that should increase slightly in 2024. But actually, in terms of the the, the, the forecast for new lev loan activity, that's not going to fill the gap. So it's really interesting. We've seen, you know, the, the activity levels for refinancings, repricings, etc. Cetera, et cetera. 
when the new M&A markets come back, then has is there sufficient capital being raised within the CLO market and the public credit markets to actually satisfy that? I think that's a really big question. And I think it's a really big question in, in the euro markets, but actually in the sterling markets uh, more, more particularly. So we, we will see on that one, I think. Since you mentioned M&A, is it coming back? Because we have a lot of processes and a lot of deals that don't seem to actually close. When will we get a healthy M&A market back? You talk to a lot of the PE guys. Sure. What is their thinking? Yeah, look, it's the million dollar question. There is no doubt there is pent up demand and there's a lot of new deal activity, let's say, in the pipe, right? So we know that uh, M&A advisors, due diligence advisors have published reports. There is a lot of processes ready to go. And yeah, the question is, who's going to have the confidence to, to press the button? Now, given the benign macro, given, as I say, people have got more visibility on where interest rates are going, I suspect people will have the confidence to push the button. And again, I think I touched on it earlier, LPs really want to see distributions. So there's certainly a little bit of pressure coming from the LP community to these managers saying, you know, we really need you to go and realize some assets, you know, go and sell, go and sell some assets, go and create some distributable proceeds that in itself will drive activity. So, you know, I am relatively optimistic that the M&A markets will come back this year and come back pretty, pretty strongly. In terms of um, the the global opportunity, Mike, when you look at all of the stuff you're looking at all day long, what's the best opportunity in terms of relative value? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, I could easily just talk to my book in Europe, couldn't I, James? That would be the easiest thing to do. But I think when we look at private credit globally, uh, we're seeing obviously elevated yields because of base rates. We're seeing risk come down. Mathematically, that has to be the case because of serviceability uh, and where interest rates are. So, you know, we, we, we see in, in most regions of the, of the world attractive risk-adjusted return for, for, for direct lending. And the illiquidity premium relative to the liquid markets is, is continuing to be consistent. So, you know, I'm not going to pick one region in the world, James, I think, uh, or else I'd be accused of talking my own book in Europe. <laughs> so you're not then worried. I mean, we've talked a little bit around this, but you're not worried about the, the comeback of the public markets sort of taking away returns or taking away the advantage from direct lending? No, look, as I think I touched on a few minutes ago, you know, direct lending is really founded on and the heritage of that business is in, in the middle market where banks, you know, are not underwriting, right? I mean, as I say, I think the underwriting market is still relatively fragile today. We're seeing flex in those in those banking deals, um, you know, and that, that flex can be punitive, which is why some of these deals are not getting done to Lisa's point. So, look, even if the, the, the public credit markets came back strongly this year, that does not impact on the bread and butter, if you like, of direct lenders, which is that core middle market. We've, we are seeing that convergence, though. I mean, you know, I think now borrowers have, have tasted what it's like to have direct lending or private credit providers in their capital structures. I think we are going to coexist. I think we're pretty well entrenched in some of these larger cap uh, type financing. So I don't think... I don't think, you know, we kind of totally disappear from that end of the market. But as I said, you know, we've treated that market as opportunistic. It it doesn't really dictate our value proposition, which is more, you know, more in that middle market space. And just to give you a chance to talk your own book in terms of Europe, um, when you meet someone, you know, let's say in Abu Dhabi or Toronto or wherever, a talk about private credit and they say, why Europe? What's the response? Why, why Europe at this point? 
Yeah, look, to, to your point, James, earlier, I think it's a really good diversifier to people's global um, global portfolios. Um, Europe is, is in a different stage of its life cycle relative to the US, right? The US, we all acknowledge, is a pretty mature private credit market. Europe really, you know, only got going in 2011-12. I know we set our business up in 2007, but it was really only 2011-12 where direct lending really became, you know, in and of itself an asset class in Europe. So, you know, we're a kind of decade in, James. So, you know, we're still really growing quite quickly as the, as the asset class matures. And with that growth becomes obviously deployment, deployment opportunity, et cetera. And as I said before, from a competitive dynamic perspective, you know, it is just less complex. It's more simple in, in Europe. You know, we've got the banks and the direct lending funds. We really don't have a lot of the other forms of capital, the BDCs, et cetera, the, et cetera that you have in the US. So I would, you know, if I had to talk my book, you've just forced me to do it. Um, I would still argue that Europe is a, is a, is a good place to invest. So we're going to dig in um, to the shipping side with Stefan Kovacev over at Bloomberg Intelligence in a little bit. But before we do, Mike, I just wanted to ask you, about the risk, because I keep banging on about it, but what is the thing that keeps you up worrying at night? What is the most concerning thing on your radar right now? Yeah, look, of course, we have to keep up our underwriting standards, um, you know, that selectivity. Um, I think the big the big uh, issue for everybody is, is human capital, actually, more than financial capital, i.e., you know, having the talent to execute on the strategy. Um, talent is pretty scarce in most of the markets we operate in good talent is is hard to come by so it's really keeping you know keeping the talent in in the team that we've got that's what i i spend a bit of time you know kind of worried about great stuff mike dennis co-head of emia credit at aries management many thanks for coming on the credit edge cheers thanks james also want to say a big thanks to lisa lee with bloomberg news in london brilliant to see you again thank you read all of lisa's great scoops on the bloomberg terminal and of course at bloomberg.com so, Stefan Kovacev at Bloomberg Intelligence, thank you so much for coming on the Credit Edge. Looks like supply chains are being disrupted again. A couple of years ago, it was due to COVID. Now it's due to the situation in the Red Sea. What's the latest in that sector? Uh, indeed, supply chains are being disrupted again, this time um, due to the Houthi rebel attacks on ships in the Gulf of Yemen and also in the Red Sea. So if we just zoom out for a second and look at the shipping companies moving goods, if you are to move a container from Asia to Europe, uh, the quickest route is via the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Yet now traveling in the region is not safe anymore uh, as Houthi rebels are firing rockets and trying to board on ships. So containing, uh, container shipping companies are choosing to avoid the Red Sea altogether and sail around Africa. So this adds about 10 days to the voyage and has a negative knock-on effect on a lot of things such as uh, the delivery schedules, the availability of uh, the actual shipping capacity, and ultimately on the prices. Um, and freight rates have risen about 300% on some routes in the last six weeks. So yes, a very interesting and volatile industry indeed. 300% increase in freight rates sounds um, like a hard uh, load to lift for those shipping companies, but also quite inflationary at a time we're worried about inflation. Can you elaborate a bit on you know, why it's gone up so much and, and where do we go from here? Sure. Um, so we're talking about the price of shipping a 40-foot container from Asia to Europe or from Asia to the US. And the 40-foot container is pretty big, actually. You can fit about four cars or 10,000 jackets in it. So 
um, that the price of transporting this container um, has gone up from about $1,500 in December to uh, triple that amount and at $4,500 or thereabouts today. And this is largely due to the um, situation in the Red Sea. So why has this happened? Well, we estimate that about 25% of global containers have been rerouted or delayed because of the situation in the Red Sea. Uh, and as container ships are delayed, there is less available capacity in the market. We estimate that there may be a reduction of about 8% of global capacity pretty much overnight due to the situation in the Red Sea. So as companies such as Nike and IKEA uh, fight for this uh, reduced space on container ships, uh, this has resulted in a pretty steep uh, increase in prices indeed. Do they keep going up from here, do you think? We are more on the, um, the cautious, depending on how you look at it, James. So from a container shipping company point of view, you want prices to be high. From an, uh, you know, a regular consumer side, you want them to be low. But we, we expect the you know, freight rates to, to, um, to move lower from here, uh, to normalize, so to speak. And uh, we have uh, you know, about three, maybe three key reasons for that. So number one is that uh, if you look at the charts of the freight rates, you can see that uh, you know, there is some room for them to increase. If you look at pandemic peaks, which were at about $14,000 to ship a container from Asia to, to Europe, but the situation now is very different. So back then, factories were closed due to COVID outbreaks and ships were stuck outside of ports for weeks. But uh, currently, you know, ships are still sailing. They just go around Africa. It takes them, them an extra 10 days. So the supply chain disruption is nowhere near the, the levels of, of the, the pandemic. So that's one kind of angle that uh, makes us a bit more and more positive on the trajectory of freight rates. And the second reason is demand. Uh, you know, although everyone is talking about the soft landing, um, you know, the high inflation and lower disposable incomes are still very much uh, problems for end consumers. So the, the demand side of the equation uh, is quite uncertain. Also, recession odds, maybe they've reduced in the US, but they've actually increased in Europe in the last six months. And the last point is the, the actual supply of new ships. So if you look at the what companies did, container shipping companies did with all the profits during the pandemic, they went and ordered new, bigger and more cost efficient container ships. And those take two to three years to be built. So now actually a lot of container ships are coming online. We estimate um, of about 9%, 9% increase in net capacity uh, in the sector this year. So more supply of ships and uh, an uncertain demand outlook should, in theory, I mean, keeping all else equal, uh, you know, lead to lower freight rates in the coming quarters, which I think is very good news for um, us and consumers, hopefully, and maybe not so good news for uh, container shipping companies. So on the inflation side, then presumably this is a, a potential easing of inflation, which is good for rates, which is good for credit markets generally. But in terms of the actual issuers you look at, the companies you look at, how does it affect them? I mean, who, who are we talking about here and, and you know, who's, who are the winners and losers? Well, um, I look at um, the sector from a credit viewpoint and, um, you know, looking at the bonds of companies such as Maersk and uh, Hapak Lloyd. I think the, what the credit markets are telling us is that, you know, the investors don't seem too worried about, uh, about the, the trends here. 
um, you know, Maersk and Hapag Lloyd bonds trade uh, in line or even tighter than similarly rated peers. Um, and to be fair, companies in the sector do have very strong balance sheets. Um, so, you know, record profits and record cash generation uh, during the pandemic have you know, left these companies in a much better place compared to historical averages. Uh, that said, what we highlight in our research are the risks ahead, be it in terms of supply or demand that we just discussed, or even in a scenario where the situation in the Middle East were to normalize um, and freight trades could, you know, crash back um, lower quite quite quickly, potentially. So I think the bottom line is that this is a very low margin, uh, competitive and very cyclical uh, shipping industry. And, you know, the weak fundamentals that resulted in um, a quite low profitability for the industry two months ago. So before the Red Sea situation, the industry was in a pretty bad um, space, a lot of oversupply, a lot, a low demand, etc. So I think, you know, there may be quite volatile times ahead because those negatives have not really gone away if we move aside the situation in the Middle East. So I think, you know, the, the potential negative catalysts ahead may not be fully reflected in in bond prices at this stage, at least from what, uh, you know, the credit markets are telling us. Stefan Kovacev, Bloomberg Intelligence, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, James. A really fascinating topic. Check out all of Stefan's research on the Bloomberg Terminal or contact him directly if you need more information. I'm actually going to spell your name, Stefan, so people can find you. It's Stefan with an E on the end, and it's Kovacev, K-O-V-A-T-C-H-E-V. Do check it out. It's wonderful stuff. And thanks again to Mike Dennis at Aries and Lisa Lee from Bloomberg News. Read all of Lisa's great scoops on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google and Spotify. Give us a review. Tell your friends or email me directly at jcrombie8 at Bloomberg.net. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. See you next time on The Credit Edge. Countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.